This is Inglorious Trexpert, Darren Docterman. And from me and everybody at the Trexperts, we wish you a lovely holiday season and hope that you have time to spend it with your friends and family and with our wonderful swag from our various websites and our sister podcasts, Inglorious Trexperts and 430 Movie. At the Inglorious Trexperts site, that's ingloriousTrexperts.com, you can find a whole bunch of swag with our Trexperts logos and famous uh, quotes from the show and T-shirts and sweatshirts and hoodies and spatulas. No, there's no spatulas. But uh, you can get tote bags and uh, coffee mugs, all that sort of swag that uh, you've come to uh, expect from a high-quality podcast. So take a look on ingloriousTrexperts.com and also look at 430movie.com. That's 430movie.com. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Sadly, the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away Ow. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, Pick it up today, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And, of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And Santa has his elves back with him this week. Aren't we excited? In the Observatory. Well, he's not making toys. He's buying toys. It's none <laughs> other than Mr. Observations himself, Rob Meyer Burnett. I come to serve. And speaking of elves... He has that mischievous gleam in his eye. We know him as Mr. Wednesday on the 430 movie, but here on Inglorious Trexperts, he's just newly minted Trexpert, Ashley Miller. I you may know his show. You, okay. you, oh. uh, something like that. You know what? Let's just pretend I wasn't going to say that. Anyway, I can't believe we are now in the 236,457th episode of the Inglorious Trexperts. Holiday special, 2021, oh 101, like greatest sci-fi movies ever made. You know, even saying it is an episode. 
you know what? For those people who are complaining that Get Back was too long, they <laughs> should right. really, uh, you know. Hold my Tranya and watch this. That's right. We just wanted to show them. If you really wanted something to be too long, it'd be the holiday special. But this is our top sci-fi 101 where we're schooling, schooling you, Professor Darren Docterman, Professor Ashley Miller, Professor Robert Meyer Burnett, and Associate Dean Mark A. Altman are... Um, the only question is, who is Ringo? Oh, my God. Who is Ringo? Yeah. Well, I'm not Ringo. In this uh, fact. I will accept the mantle of Ringo because I'd be married to Barbara Fox. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. I mean, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, just... Anya Masava, Agent Triple X. So who's the quiet, uh, the, the, the quiet one who doesn't get enough credit, but is truly, you know, uh, just one, who's the George? Is that <clears throat> Ashley Miller? Could my I'm sweet not lord? The quiet one. I could be the quiet one, though. We'd like you to be the quiet one, is what we're saying. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. OK. As long as we don't have a Michael Lindsay Hogg on this panel. Okay. God, he's so annoying for anybody who's watched Get Back. If you haven't, then it means nothing to you. Okay. Top 101. When last we left the countdown, number 33 was none other than the beloved classic from Steven Spielberg, E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Darren extolled the virtues of that brilliant and beautiful film. We all agreed. Well earned on the on the on the list could even be higher, but that's only because we don't know what's yet to come. So as we pick up at number thirty-two, we're back in the USSR with Robert Meyer Burnett. Andre Tarkovsky is one of my favorite directors, <clears throat> and uh, I'm paraphrasing, but Roger Ebert said you needed a a, a certain level of attention uh, that that he was he was a director who demanded. Uh, a viewer's attention uh, you needed to have a certain level of uh, understanding of the pacing of his films he in 1972 uh, he won the Cannes Film Festival this special grand prize uh, the Grand Prix Grand Prix special de jury Grand Prix, grand prix. Grand prix. Uh, and uh, this was based is on is that like whole... Tuvix? no it's Grand Prix Grand Prix I know what uh, uh, and uh Solaris was based on Polish science fiction author Stanislaw Lem's novel. Kelvin, psycholog. Сколько я вижу, вы меня не ждали? Он понимает, что все будет зависеть от его первого сообщения со станции. Если увидите нечто необычное, не меня, не Сарторюса, старайтесь. Держите себя в руках. А кто приходил? Она умерла 10 лет тому назад. То, что ты видел, материализация твоего представления о ней. А Крис меня любит. Хочет мною живой. Да вы не женщина и не человек. А вы, вы только ее повторение. Мне кажется, я, я должна тебя все время видеть. Я становлюсь человеком. Ты 
чувства я нисколько не меньше, чем вы. Tarkovsky was incredibly critical of Kubrick's 2001. Didn't like it. Talked about technology. He thought it was bullshit. And uh, the wonderful thing about Solaris is it presents not not since <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy 2 did we have a planet that was a sentient being. And one of the really interesting things about the movie Solaris, it's about a man who is tasked to go to a space station where there are scientists observing the planet Solaris. And there's wacky stuff happening. So Chris Kelvin is summoned to this space station to find out what's going I on. I don't think Tarkovsky referred to it as wacky stuff, though. No, probably not. He didn't. But what was really, what I find Uh, beautiful and lyrical about this film is first of all you have an alien life form you have a sentient planet and we don't quite know that but so chris kelvin goes to this space station and finds out that the the scientists that are there are uh completely enraptured of visions that they have been having and when chris gets there he starts having visions of his dead wife who appears to him in the flesh And it's all about emotion and love and imagination. And what's so interesting is this planet, Solaris, is communicating with humanity through our memories, through our remembrances of people we love, things that have happened to us. And it really is all about communication between life forms that are so diametrically opposed so different from one another but their one life form solaris is trying to meet humanity on an emotional and uh, 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 an imaginative and a, a, a memory level and it, it, it is such a wonderfully beautiful film yet tragic mournful um even though it takes place on a space station and the space station's cool, but any pretense of sci-fi as we know it is stripped away. And it's a film that is, it really is about the human soul. And if we ever do meet alien life, that is so different and so strange. And so dare I say it, alien how will we communicate? And Solaris is a film about communicating through emotion. Now, I know what you're thinking at home. You're thinking, what is it with these commies that they're going with this Russian film when they haven't even mentioned the great American Kurt Russell and Ego, the living planet? Well, I just want to remind you that superhero movies are not eligible under our rules, nor fantasy films. So if you're expecting Guardians of the Galaxy 2 to somehow sneak on this list because it also has a living planet, it's not going to happen. Well, no. And um, that movie has uh, that movie's all about the patriarchy. <laughs> Literally. I mean, this is a film about 
I mean, it, 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 it is such a moving and it's such an affecting film. And Tarkovsky really, he, he thought Kubrick completely missed the mark, even though I would dare say that 2001, in my mind, is the single greatest science fiction film ever made. Well, we'll find out. We will. As the countdown continues. But I do love this film. I adore it. It takes a certain... You need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. You really need to sit down and get in the mindset of this movie. But it truly is... It might be the greatest first contact film ever made. There you have it. Tarkovsky Solaris, not to be confused with Steven Soderbergh's Solaris. Also we- a wonderful film, by the way. Okay. Indeed. Well... As we get to number 31, it reminds us that wherever you go, there you are. And I hear someone out there crying in the dark that somebody is Ashley Edward Miller. Ashley Edward Miller, just crying because his, both of his jokes were taken. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> you know, no, it's okay. Um, you know, the number number 31 is a, is a movie where there's uh, something that uh, it's very important that we all all sort of grasp, which is it's not the my goddamn planet to understand the monkey boy. <laughs> I am referring, of course, to uh, W.D. Richter's perhaps his magnum opus. And I well, certainly as a director. Uh, and I say this as the world's biggest fan of Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, W.D. Richter's magnum opus the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. He's a rocker. Doctor. Don't talk on that. You never know what it might be attached to. Inventor. Activate oscillator. He's on the Philosopher. No matter where you go, there you are. And the only hero. Buckaroo. 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 Curse are you, Banzai! Who can save us all? Evil! You are unstoppable from the eighth dimension! Grab him! Launch Thermopod. Buckaroo Banzai is pure nutty fun. Buckaroo, you forgot your thruster. What are you all onto for what? The cult sci-fi classic. Run, run! In a dimension all its own. Real life Martians landing in New Jersey. We will fire a portable beam weapon. Vaporize the whole damn planet? If we blow this today, get him up. There ain't no tomorrow. Left, I said left. This is left. I mean, my left. All left goes your right. Buckaroo, the president's calling about is everything okay with the alien space club and planet 10, or should we just go ahead and destroy Russia? Tell him yes on one and no on two. The Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai. Which was yes, destroy Russia or uh, number two? Now you may ask, what is the plot of the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension? And I will answer, yes, it has one. Uh, In this seminal science fiction action comedy starring a man who is a ninja, a surgeon, a rocket scientist, a hero, a lover of women, a leader of men, um, (laughs) the earth beats back uh, an invasion uh, of aliens onto our planet. Uh, and of course we have to, uh, to, to fight the evil genius of John Lithgow. Uh, 
and uh, and it takes a, a cast of a cast of thousands, an all star cast, to make it happen. Um, Buckaroo Banzai is look. It's a movie that never ever should have been made. Uh, it's a, it's a movie that today I don't think ever would be made, except that somebody had once made it, once upon a time, and there's a, a loyal cult following for it, so there must be something to it. Um, because we do have this disparate collection of elements. We've got, because I mentioned the surgery and the ninja and the fighting aliens, but what I didn't mention was the rock band, okay? <laughs> it's like, we've got all of these elements together in this crazy stew with, with just some of the most amazing, fun, crazy dialogue uh, of, of all time in the, the history of film. It is like, you know, Howard Hawks on ketamine. It is, um, it's, it is truly uh, transcendent and effervescent and strange. Uh, it begins with a, with a classic uh, scene of, uh, of Buckaroo in a rocket car that is trying to, uh, to pierce the barrier between dimensions um, and of course it works. And of course it kicks off a whole chain of events, uh, that results in, uh, in what, uh, could be the end of the world as the, uh, as the red electroids, uh, battle their arch nemeses, uh, to, uh, to, to return home, to like, to destroy the earth, to do whatever the hell it is the electroids are doing. Um, it's a, it's a movie where you find yourself watching scenes where somebody asks our hero, the White House wants to know, is everything okay with the alien spacecraft from Planet 10, or should we just go ahead and destroy Russia? Tell him yes on one, no on two. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's that kind of a film. Um, and if you're not entertained by it, I don't want to know you. You could say it's more than transcendent. It's transplendent. And if I had my druthers, the number one film on our countdown would be Buckaroo Banzai versus the World Crime League. Because in Damn, my right mind, away. I've seen that movie and it's great. Well, you know what, Mark? This was released recently. What is that? Ooh. Buckaroo Banzai versus the World Crime League. Wow. And, uh, uh, yes. Let me who just wrote say, it? well, who wrote it? The is Reno it Kid wrote it with wow. E.M. Rouch. Really? Oh, okay. Good? So what's important yes. about that is this is the official sequel to Buckaroo Bonsai. Okay. Is so, it good? I don't know. I haven't find I haven't, out. I've been reading Star Trek us. Coda. Oh. Jesus Christ, man. Put that down and I'm read sorry. that and do a book report. <laughs> I right. just so, sang. Uh, by the way, it is very it is very thick. <laughs> Wait, that's what I'm she's ordering it right now. So oh, I, we do I, this I, podcast. I, I want should. to to point at the at the author of that book and tell you like why it counts as the official sequel because, because Buckaroo Banzai that movie was based on a character that was created um, by that author yep. unless it's his kid uh, no it's you know, the who, actual author who wrote all of these insane stories about uh, about Buckaroo and like would start them and maybe not finish them and put them away so we had just this vast collection of half-assed adventures uh, that W.D. Richter looked at and said, you know, it would be great if we put a bunch of that stuff together and we made a half-assed movie that totally works. Tell me, when you say Buckaroo, you don't hear it said by Sean Connery in the hunt you, for an October. Buckaroo. Buckaroo. <laughs> come on. Well, Darren, I just, yeah. Darren, I just Darren, ordered the book. Darren, come on, give us a Buckaroo, come on, Darren. Come on, come on, give us a Buckaroo. Come on. 
we meet the right sort of person, this could work. But if we get some buckaroo. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> Thank you. God bless you, sir. <laughs> oh, my God. Great movie. So much fun. And, and you know, partially, it also had the joy of having the fan club. You could become a Blue Blazer regular when the movie came out. Yep. So you could really participate in it and be one of his trusted allies. And, and, uh, and by the way, Mark, do you know who was very instrumental in those Blue Blazer regular? Uh, 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 Mike Akuda. Yep. Really? I yep. know. Mike and was Denise. He really? Yep. yep. I did not awesome. realize that. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. I know they're, they're they're big champions of that movie and deservedly so. I still so. have all of my blue blazer regular notes. Or Remember getting that stuff in the mail? It was always that so was, cool. It was so and like the fact that 20th Century Fox even did that. Like, well, can you imagine they a had, studio like they doing had no it now? idea what else to do? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they had they, no they, idea. It went on for years. Like they, I would get things in the mail. Somebody had to uh, authorize the payments of those sending those out. I went to well, see that the first week of my freshman year of college, and I, I, I didn't even know these people, my roommate, the people in my suite, and like we were there, we're like, well, we should go see a movie. I said, let's go see Buckaroo Bonsai across the eighth dimension, and we all marched into Boston and went to see it, and when it was over, they all looked at me and said, what the hell was that? I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just goes to show you. you it just goes to show you that uh, wherever you go, there you are. There you are. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of wherever you are, sometimes you can find yourself on the front lines of a war with aliens. And that's where Darren finds himself in 1953, number 30. Across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, looked upon our sphere with envious eyes. You're reading from the book. I'm not reading anything. Come on, that's the book, dude. And it's also about in the movie. Not quite. Kind of. Enough. Sort of. It is enough. Let him, let him talk. Let him play. Let them play. I didn't interrupt your Solaris thing. You're right. It's <laughs> I was trying to bring a little Wells into it as well. So anyway, um, the War There's of the else. Worlds, the second War of the Worlds that I've talked about on here. This could be the beginning of the end for the human race. For what men first thought were meteors or the often ridiculed flying saucers are in reality the flaming vanguard of the invasion from Mars. Looks like they're going to come out of that gully pretty soon. We'll have to rush our defenses to be ready when they do. Guys need plenty of reinforcements. We'll get them. Lieutenant, look! They slash across country like scythes wiping out everything that's trying to get away from them. That explains why communication is cut the moment their machines begin moving. Montreal's blacked out. Nothing more has come through. Same thing that happened on the Pacific Coast. Anything from them yet? No, Mr. Secretary, we've had nothing from San Francisco for over five hours. The nations of the world mobilize their armed might, rushing to defend the Earth against the unknown weapons of the super race from the Red Planet. 
Is there nothing that can stop the Martian death machines? Guns, tanks, bombs. They're like toys against them. We know now that we can't beat their machines. We've got to beat them. All over the world, human beings cower before the onslaught of these unearthly enemies whom no one has ever seen. Panic that sweeps around the globe as the great masses of mankind flee blindly in a headlong stampede of hysteria. This is, in fact, from 1953, and uh, it is uh, directed by Byron Haskin, who was basically uh, um, sort of standing in for uh, uh, our second uh, favorite uh, uh, sci-fi director. Um, George Powell? Yes, of course, George Powell. Um, uh, War of the Worlds is... Um, arguably one of the first really big sci-fi movies uh you know between that and forbidden planet these were b movies that were taken seriously and i'll tell you war of the worlds the 1953 version has several scenes that are ingrained in my brain and scared the living bejesus out of me when i was younger when i saw it even on a little black and white tv and uh, I think it obviously had the same effect on uh, Steven Spielberg because uh, he copied several of those scenes uh, almost uh, 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 perfectly in uh, his version. Um, the, uh, the scene of uh, the, uh, the Reverend walking toward the uh, war machine. And, I shall uh, fear with, no evil. Uh, uh, it, it's, <laughs> it's so uh, moving and scary and brilliant and i, it, I lost it, my innocence well i i don't care i, I don't want to know about that but <laughs> no but i mean i mean uh, I, I, my best friend i was a jew a jewish boy my best friend was catholic and when i saw the film for the first time i it to me it was a transgression against god but that was a great deleted scene where the rabbi got killed right but he no, no. <laughs> it was terrifying i mean it, it told me that the world was a rough place well that sound and the martian a, war machines oh my god i have a bad joke mark but i'm gonna say it um the war machine lit the rabbi's candle god what oh, i don't even get that <laughs> it's the last day of hanukkah they were recording i know but our audience won't get that they don't care they're that, they're, they're already asleep it's such a great <laughs> movie it's such a great but movie what, what what it told you at that moment was all bets are off yeah yeah, no mm -hmm. one's safe. No, no one's one is, safe. No one is protected. No one. No the one. amazing uh, uh, Martian war machines designed by art director Alan Lazaki are uh, iconic. Um, the uh, the sound. Some of the best. Some of the best uh, 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 ships ever designed for anything ever. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, the manta shape of the base and oh, those so great. The, the eye uh, stalk that comes out of it. Um, is 
so cool and yet so frightening. And the sound effects that were developed for it um, were uh, so good that everyone used them years Including later. Star Trek. <laughs> Including Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, Byron Haskin uh, worked on um, Where No Man Has Gone Before for uh, on Star Trek. Was it or was it the cage? Wait, which was it? I don't remember. I don't I don't it, it might have been where no man has gone before. I don't I don't think he did the, the cage. He didn't direct him, but he he yeah, I think it was where no man has gone before. But oh. because Roddenberry was such a huge fan of um He was such a huge fan of uh, War of the Worlds. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Rob, you remember what what Byron Haskin supervised the effects? Was it on the cage or where no man has I, I, I don't remember. I, I, I was going to use that newfangled contraption called the Internet and look it up, but I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm not sure what it was. I don't remember. But um, I don't remember. Look, I mean, this That's film weakness, a lack of memory. <laughs> I have to say this movie was my first favorite movie of all time. Mm. And uh, the first time I ever took a long trip with my grandmother to see her sister, we went from Seattle to Seaside, Oregon. I spent the entire three hours or three and a half hours telling her the entire plot of War of the Worlds detail by detail. Beat by beat. And and my mother still says, you tormented my own mother. I, I know you were five, but you should never have done that because you drove her to madness. I'm like, I couldn't <laughs> help it. What can I say? This is the greatest thing I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> That's funny. I read the book in the backseat of a car on one of those long trips. Like, I was like, after I saw the movie, I, I like I had to read the book. And so I sat in the back like for this three hour car trip and just read the it's not a very long book. And I read, you know, War of the Worlds and finished it just as we were arriving wherever we were going. I love that book, but I love that movie. What a great movie. The movie is great. And it's, it's one uh, of the greatest and, science fiction movies ever made. And the little Martians are freaking scary. Mm-hmm. Dude, they're so scary. Darren, let me could. let me ask you something. Like we all saw this kind of because it was a staple of television. Yes. You know, and and for me, it was it was a very it was a seminal moment in my life where it codified my love of science fiction, fantasy and horror. I was a Star Trek fan, but I also saw World of the Worlds kind of at the same time. Now, I would ask you, do you think kids today would have the same response to it that we did? Um. That's a good question. We'll have to do seen. a test. Probably, probably not with the with the uh, easy uh, easy access to everything else. Um, mm-hmm. Ashley, if you show it to, to Caden, I'll show I'll show Isaac. Okay, let's do that. Let's do an experiment. See how yeah, and fil- film. Thing, you guys should film that. Film their response. Because the thing okay. that drew me to uh, wanting to see War of the Worlds was listening to the radio play first. Yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, and that scared the crap out of me. The Orson Welles the radio, Orson Welles, uh, which was on. I used to get that at the library all the time. I borrowed yeah. at the library. That my dad, album. my dad had a record album of it, and I played that over and over and over yeah. again. That um, was scary. It was great. It was yeah. absolutely great. Especially you played it with the lights off. Two X Two L calling CQ. Two X Two L calling CQ New York. Nobody's <laughs> <laughs> on the air. So great, so great. Well. I think that's something we all agree, a sci-fi classic. And belongs uh, on the list. On the next, list. Our next pick, if you're a member of the Salome Jens fan club like we oh, are, man. then you will love Rob's pick for number 29. First of all, 
director John Frankenheimer uh, in the 1960s was a man who crushed it. Uh, he directed The Manchurian Candidate. He directed Birdman of Alcatraz. He directed, wait, what? Uh, seconds, which I think is one of the great science fiction films of the 1960s. People are like, well, there's only one. There's only Planet of the Apes. That's not true. Seconds was based on a novel, and uh, it, it it's an incredible uh, a novel that came out uh, by David Eli in 1962, I think. Seconds stars uh, Rock Hudson and the founder, the leader of the founders for Deep Space Nine, Salome Jens, who, by the way, back in the day when she was not, uh, uh, she had no facial what do, you, what do you want to call it? She looked great in the 60s. Seconds is a, 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 a seconds is a film about a schlubby middle-aged man whose life did not turn out to be the way he wanted it. John and Randolph. There is a shady secret organization that says, we can help you. And this schlubby middle-aged man gets turned into Rock Hudson through Richard Dean Anderson, the man who we created can rebuild Steve him. Austin. We have the technology. Uh, they, they, he plays the doctor. Not Richard that, Dean Anderson, just Richard Anderson. Oh, pardon me, Richard. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, I, yes, not it's Richard okay. Dean. Richard Jessica Anderson. Von Puttermaker. I know. So, so basically you have a schlubby middle-aged man who is transformed into Rock Hudson. He's given a new identity a new life. He's moved out to the West Coast. He's an artist. He gets everything he could possibly want. He, he, he the life that he thought he wanted uh, or that he thought he was going to have that didn't amount to anything. He's now given gifted a brand new life. And it's fantastic. Bizarre, terrifying. Rock Hudson, in an astonishing change of pace, stars in seconds. Rock Hudson as a second, freed from all responsibilities, now ready to taste new pleasures. Rock Hudson, as a man who buys for himself a totally new life, a chance to begin again. Every man's dream since time began. As soon as these people leave, I'm going to attack you. I want you to know that. I'm counting on it. Rock Hudson, as a man who lives the nightmare of being a second. Why are you all staring at me like that? <laughs> Hey, John. Hey, John. <laughs> hey, John. Why are they staring at me like that? They know. <laughs> they know what? They're like you. 
reborns. And it's amazing. And you watch him try and deal with the West Coast, California lifestyle. There's an amazing scene where it's celebrated when everyone, they go up to wine country and everyone gets into wine barrels and squishes grapes under their feet. grapes. It's very erotic. It's kind of amazing. And that makes me, anyway, uh, never mind. But uh, I. (laughs) And Lucy Ricardo helps out. But what the what the what <laughs> yes, but what this film is really about is the road less traveled. And as all great science fiction does, it makes the viewer question their own lives. And what ends up happening is that this man realizes that, you know, I did love my wife. I did love the world that I inhabited. And it's a mistake. Uh, what I've done is a mistake and there is no going back. Once he's made the transformation, the company that made it possible, this, this shady company called the company, you don't get to go back. Yeah. You know, your mistakes or whatever, you cannot reverse these choices. And it has one of the most chilling endings of any movie I've ever seen in my entire life. And I think that, you know, this is what great science fiction does. It, it, it makes us, it takes modern technology or it takes the world around us, twists it a little bit and forces us to look inside ourselves and wonder, would we do that? Yeah. Should we do that? Could we? And Seconds is an incredible, it was shot by James Wong Howe, one of the great uh, black and white photographers. He shot The Sweet Smell of Success. He's an amazing DP, Frankenheimer. I mean, he did Seven Days in May as well. Um, this is a film that not a lot of people talk about. Criterion did put it out on Blu-ray. But it is a fantastic film that will leave you shattered and you will never stop thinking about it because you will put yourself in the protagonist's position. Yeah, I was a Frankenheimer fan from Venturing Candidate, but I have to admit, I, I you know, it really wasn't until the Frankenheimer revival of the 90s, like when mm-hmm. Ronan came out and everybody rediscovered him. And today, that's Michael Bay's illegitimate father that people started <laughs> talking about uh, Frankenheimer again. And so a lot of his uh, um, films got a critical reassessment and a lot of things that had been largely ignored. You know, Seven Days in May, a lot of these films started coming out on DVD and Blu-ray. But Seconds was really the revelation, I think. Saw it at the American Cinematheque as part of a Frankenheimer revival. And it just blew me away. I mean, it's yeah. so good. It's brilliantly shot, as you said, by James Wong Howe. Performances are great. Uh, it, it's just a really sort of sick, perverse movie. And it, it's so brilliantly directed by Frankenheimer, who truly is one of our great directors, you know. Um, and, uh, came out of live television and just the, his movies are, are sensational. Thank you for saying that, because, you know, he had a a bit of a (laughs) he had a bit of a snit in the 70s, but uh, his output in the 1960s is is one of the greatest runs of any American director ever. And yeah, it's amazing. The train. Yep. Yep. No, absolutely. 
Well, of course, that brings us to number 28. It's the sequel to the movie The Men, Children of Men. Oh, wait. No, it's not. <laughs> There's no sequel. It's Children, Children of, Men. of Men at work at play. I can't really remember when I last had any hope. And I certainly can't remember when anyone else did either. Because really, since women stopped being able to have babies, what's left to hope for? The world was stunned today by the death of Diego Ricardo, the youngest person on the planet. The youngest person on Earth was 18 years, 4 months, 20 days, 16 hours and 8 minutes old. The ultimate mystery, why are women infertile? Some say it's genetic experiments, pollution. Why do you think we can't make babies anymore? Doesn't matter. It's all over in 50 years. It's too late. Move along! Hello, Theo. How have you been? I'm sorry about the theatrics. Police have been a pain lately. I haven't seen you for nearly 20 years. I need your help. Not for me, a girl. I need to get her to the coast, past security checkpoints. It's hard for me to look at you. He had your eyes. So why did you come to me? I trust you. Show him. Now you know what's at stake. We have to meet the boat. What is this boat? The human project of Center Boat. The human project? It's the greatest minds in the world working for a new society. Your baby is the miracle the whole world has been waiting for. We will find a way to get you to the human project, I promise you. We're almost there, Keith. We're almost there. From uh, Alfonso Caron, this was a real um, uh, tour de force. Uh, from, uh, you know, he, a lot of people remember it from its stunning wonder, uh in which Clive Owen is uh, attempting to escape uh, with uh, one of the last pregnant women on Earth um, because it takes place in the wake of a horrible plague in which suddenly um, women find they can no longer uh, be fertile and, and give birth to children. And so children are, are a very rare uh, uh, commodity. It's a very dystopian sort of downer of a movie but um, superbly directed uh, by uh, Alfonso Cuaron. And, and just, uh, 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 you know, I don't think a lot of people think of this necessarily as a sci-fi movie. You know, it happens when something becomes like Oscar bait and, and something's really well executed and artistic. Suddenly they don't consider it a genre movie anymore. They stripped the label. It's so weird. Yeah. <laughs> but let me tell you, this yeah. is a sci-fi movie through and through with uh, brilliant performances by... Uh, um, uh, uh, not only Clive I, Owen, but Juliet, uh, um, uh, uh -huh. you know, big Lebowski and Julianne Moore, God, Julianne Moore, Julianne Moore. And, uh, it's just, uh, you know, just an, a, a complete tour de force and, and a superb motion picture. I mean, I, I also have to say that 
that what I love about this film is the melancholy nature of it. I mean, the idea that humanity is done, mm-hmm. you know, and and even the music choices, everything about it. I mean, uh, we, we they touch on the fact that all of the art, the art that humanity created is now being hoarded and and it's maybe the last vestige of what we will leave to the universe. Mm-hmm. There's a mm-hmm. really interesting melancholy feel about this film. Plus, it's kick-ass nature. It's a be- this movie is beautiful. It's so great. Yeah, and and that 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 you know shot that everybody talks about is sensational. And of course, there's a great cameo from Michael Caine. Michael Caine. What movie is uh, is 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 uh, now uh, movies are only better with the presence of Michael Caine, and there's uh, Children of Men is no exception. Absolutely not. So at number twenty-seven, Ashley, you're no replicant, are you? But uh, you know what? I didn't think so. And then the weirdest thing happened at work. You were turning Japanese. I was turning Japanese. I, I, I really think so. Um, so coming in at um, number 27 is uh, a little uh, just a tiny little independent film, just a very intimate drama by a director known for um, medium shots. Uh, <laughs> Denis Villeneuve's uh, Blade Runner sequel, Blade Runner 2049. I thought you might be able to help me with the case. Any idea where I could find him? You police plan on taking me in. I would much prefer that to the alternative. Every leap of civilization was built off the back of slaves. Replicants are the future, but I can only make so many. I had the luck. And he has the key. I think I found him. That's not possible. If this gets out, we've bought ourselves a war. You're a cop. I had your job once. Things were simpler then. What do you want? I want to ask you some questions. What happened? I covered my tracks. Scrambled the records. We were being hunted. By who? They know you're here. You do not know what pain is yet. You will learn. Bring it to me. This breaks the world. We have to go. I'm coming with you. Where is he? The future of the species is finally unearthed. 
Now, this was a movie that I think the world was uh, was prepared um, to just kind of go, yeah, you suck, because there is just no way to make a sequel to Blade Runner. Because let's face it, Blade Runner is a movie. God, this seems like a theme right now. Blade Runner is a movie that, frankly, it's astonishing that it happened at all. Uh, a movie that when it came out was not exactly setting the world on fire with its box office or even its critical reception. Um, it was a movie that had to be discovered and championed. Uh, a cult had to become uh, something greater, perhaps a, a full religion. I don't know. Um, I was looking for something bigger than a cult. That was all I could come up with. Uh, and um, eventually it did to the point where I think there are now 38 different versions of this film uh, that have all been released on, on Blu-ray and you can see every single one of them. And they are all the director's cut because the director cannot stop cutting, but that's okay because every single one of them is really interesting. And what's really interesting about Blade Runner, which is based on a, uh, on a, on a novella, eh, kind of a novel by Philip K. Dick, uh, do androids dream of electric sheep, which is excellent, but not exactly the story that you remember from Blade Runner. Uh, not at all. Not like, in fact, like not at all, except for like a few like things that are sort of like it. You know, okay, well, that's interesting. Um, is it's it's not just a matter. Uh, it's not a movie that isn't just interested in you know what makes us human, right? Because I guess that's a part of it, right? Like, are you a replicant? Like, or are you a human being? And and what is that? Like, what's the line right between being artificial life and being life? But it's also very concerned with memory and how memory of things that have happened to us, right? Ephemera, things that have just gone away and form who we are now in the moment. You're and talking about memories. I'm talking about memory. I'm talking about universal Armageddon. No, wait. Uh, I, I don't know. I just totally segued off. And see, that was memory uh -huh. operating in its own strange little way. And that's you how you know to, I'm not a replicant. Actually, a replicant would to, not have made that mistake. You have to stop thinking like a replicant and start thinking like a replican. <laughs> Thank you. No. So one of the one of the big questions about replicants in Blade Runner was always, well, what are the things that you remember and can you rely upon those things? Are those memories implanted to make you feel as though you were real? And it was in a way it was beautifully expressed by the actual memories of the replicants that we meet in Blade Runner, Roy Batty, right? I've seen like ships on fire at the shoulder of Orion. You know, sea beams of Tannhauser Gate, right? It's like all those things lost, like tears and rain. And it's fascinating, right? So where the do you go with that? And what's brilliant about Blade Runner 2049 is that it figures out where you go, right? Um, Blade Runner 2049, look, it, it, it doesn't quite pick up exactly where the last one left off, but it, it picks up with the implications of Blade Runner. What happens when a replicant and maybe a person uh, have a little BB, right? What does that mean to the world? What does that mean to the replicants? What does that mean to our conception of what life is, what it can be, what is sentience? Um, at what point, you know, is this a new species? And all that's like very intellectual, very, very heady. Where the movie gets its emotional power is we have a character in the middle of it, played by Ryan Gosling, Kay, and what Kay struggles with at every point is 
what am I? Am I a replicant? I have, you know, these memories and maybe they're implanted, except I keep finding evidence that the memories I have are real, physical, objective evidence that I can touch. So I must be real. I must be this person. And what's brilliant about it is it doesn't just ask the question, am I human, right? It asks, who am I to these other characters? Who is Kay to Rick Deckard? Who is Kay to Rachel? Um, again, played by- Who is by Kay to Chuck. himself? Who is Kay to himself? Exactly. And and it's it's more than just, you know, kind of folding up aluminum foil into unicorns, which is great. It kind of, it takes it to a whole new level of asking the question. Um, and it's beautiful. It is undeniably beautiful. And look, if there is one dude I would not want to follow up, it's Ridley Scott. Like, look, even Jim Cameron, when he made Aliens, didn't try to like out Ridley Scott, Ridley Scott. Jim Cameron made his own movie. Uh, and I'm not saying that Denis Villeneuve didn't make his own movie. He did. But he plays in the same space as a director, I think, that Ridley Scott plays in. And he succeeds wonderfully in creating a world um, that we believe that is immersive, um, that is endlessly interesting. Do I think that Blade Runner 2049 is, is good or superior to Blade Runner? I, I'll be honest, I don't yet. But if Blade Runner itself is any guide, then we don't yet know, I think, um, what we truly believe about Blade Runner 2049. I think that time uh, will be the test to tell us really where this film fits into the pantheon. I have to say that I, I do think Blade Runner 2049 is one of the great sequels of all time. And it, it, it because the filmmakers had a reverence for the source material and they were, they were grasping for something, they were reaching for something that was unique and it was uh, enlightening. And it was something I, I, I saw this movie alone on the Tuesday after it had opened. And I went to the uh, Chinese theater. I was there. Not very many people were there. And it was really a transcendent cinematic experience. Everything about this, the sound design, the picture quality, the story, I felt transported. And I was elated when I walked out because at the end of the day, this movie tells us that humanity, whether it's constructed or whether it's born, that humanity is something to be celebrated. And I like that. Yeah, I love so much of this movie. I think where it falls down, you know, not unlike the original Blade Runner, those last 20 minutes where, uh, you know, Harrison Ford is in that flooding shuttle that's crashed in the water and it seems to go on endlessly. Um, but it has big thoughts on its mind. And when it's dealing with those, it's very effective. And of course, Roger Deakins' magnificent uh, photography. Oh my God. Yeah. It's worth the price of admission. Dude, come on. Roger freaking Deakins. Doesn't get any he's here. He's there. He's every freaking where. What? That's right. What, well, what, what Lorraine? What Lorraine? For, for those of you who are wondering how Rob Burnett has managed to find the hour after hour after hour to participate in our countdown. The answer is quite simple. For number 26, he's here for the gasoline. <laughs> Now, okay, 
I've read probably a thousand, 10,000 movie reviews in my life. But there is one movie review that I remember beyond all others. And it was Richard Corliss's time review of this movie, The Road Warrior, because the, the headline was Apocalypse Pow. In the future, cities will become deserts. Roads will become battlefields. And the hope of mankind will appear as a stranger. Now, I don't know why, (laughs) you know what? It just stuck with me. It stuck with me. I was like, oh, my God, apocalypse, pow, apocalypse. In my own life, I mean, years on, this was so, for those of you who don't know, um, in the rest of the world, this movie was called Mad Max 2. In the United States, in the United States, Mad Max was a basically a drive-in second build feature. It was not. It was not a big success, but in the rest of the world, it did some, it did it did okay. So the sequel was called Mad Max Two in the rest of the world, but this movie was acquired by Warner Brothers, and they retitled it The Road Warrior. It's a great title and uh, a great title. Such a good movie, and this film was directed by George Miller, shot by Dean Cundy, and um, and blown this- up by everybody else. Well, this film is if you talk about true cinema, which is is the things that are visual. I mean, my God, this film is so beautifully done. I mean, it it has action scenes. If you watch this movie and take here, I would ask you this. It was just released in 4K. 
although they've recalled it because they fucked up the disc, but whatever. They're going to fix it. But but watch this movie without sound. This film is pure cinema. George Miller's direction, the, the, the photography in this film. And we all, we all know the story. Max Rakitansky, former police. He's a cop, beat cop. It's now in a post-apocalyptic Australia. You know, the funny thing about this, the whole premise is like everyone needs gasoline. gasoline. Where are they going to go? We don't ask. It doesn't matter. But they need gas to go wherever they're going to go. And uh, this film is about, a, it's a siege movie. And and Max Rokitansky is a former cop. His wife was killed, gunned down with his kid by by uh, post-apocalyptic gang members. And he he becomes the savior of a group of let's call them nice people that are are protecting a refinery that is making gas. And the Lord Humongous, the Ayatollah of Rock and Roller is a man who leads a bunch of ruffians that want the gas. So you have a, a, a it, it's almost like the Battle of Helm's Deep in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and, Go to Australia uh, and get gas. I mean, it, 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 you know, New Zealand, they've got, they don't need gas. So they just fight over whatever. But uh, the, 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 this movie is, um, you know, it, it's post-apocalyptic, but at the end of the day, it's messianic. It's all about, the savior myth and uh, what people need and what people want and where they're going. It's basically about people that need to be saved. And, 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 and Mad Max is the post-apocalyptic Jesus Christ who shows up in his leather and his, his metal tools that are hanging from his, his suit and he will save us all. And that's Flash Gordon, the nectar of life is that gas gasoline and it is it's one of the greatest films i think one of the greatest action films ever made it is an extraordinary cinematic accomplishment my god every shot in this film could be hung in the met it's incredible and um i i i I can't say enough about it i have a story to tell though oh shit i mean so So when I no, no, yeah, I got I, I have a road warrior story I'm going to tell, and I'm going to out someone. I'll, I'm going to say her name. So when this film came out, I was moving from a junior high to a high school, and the first week of high school, you had two junior highs, three year that was seventh to ninth grade feeding into a high school, and I met a girl named Julie Williams, and she said I if she went to the other stop junior high calling school, me. Oh, sorry. No, and she said, she said, uh, she said, uh, we should go out. First week of us, I'm like, all right, she's cute, blonde, nice. And she goes, let's go see a movie. And I said, okay. And uh, we went and saw The Road Warrior. And her older sister and her older sister's boyfriend drove us. So it was the four of us. And we're all going, we're going to the Guild 45th in seattle sitting down and she doesn't want to sit with her sister and her boyfriend so she's like let's go sit back here and she tried to make out with me during the road war tried and died tried and died <laughs> i did not make out with her i'm like what the fuck it's the fucking road warrior are you trying to make out with me so i go to school second week of high school everyone's everyone's 
a guy named Keith Shems comes up, comes up to me and goes, Hey man, uh, are you gay? Like, uh, no, but I'm like, do you need a date? And uh, he's like, oh, I heard you were gay. I'm like, I'm not gay. Why, why would you hear that? Well, Julie Williams said that you didn't want to make out with her uh, in a movie. And I, I'm like, dude, dude, it was the fucking road warrior. And he goes, wait, you were in the road warrior. And she, I go, yeah, we were seeing the road. It was like my sixth time. He goes, you were in the road warrior and she's pissed that you're not making out with her. I'm like, yeah. He goes, dude, I totally understand. I get it. I got to tell you, man, I totally would have made out with Julie Williams. Yeah, especially with my sixth story. time because I know what's going on in the movie. But that's the difference between you and me. You're you're committed, like they talk about. Julie, uh, always loved you, but uh, you were wrong at this time. Just so, I'm look, I went to see place. the uh, the Road Warrior. I got to see it on the the big screen back when the arc light still existed. They're doing the AFI, like they did, like their little thing, like you know, once a month, and uh, and man man it holds up 40 feet high so good you know one of the things that's really kind of timeless crazy, it really is totally timeless. is it's you know mel gibson is just kind of like at his feral best and he's got 12 lines in that movie one of which is oh, i could drive that truck i mean come on and it has like two this- days ago i saw a vehicle that would haul that tanker you want to yeah. get out of here talk to me Exactly. It's it is. Then it just leads to like one of the craziest freaking chases of all time with an amazing punchline straight out of the great train robbery. Uh, And it's just it is it just it's propulsive. It doesn't screw around. It is weird without being self-indulgent. Um, and you know, it is like everything, you know, we talk about Fury Road, like at least at least we talk about Fury Road a lot on uh 430 movie, but like everything that we love about Fury Road, I think is like, is present here in the, in the road warrior, you know, it is just, it is, it's very specific world building. It is just so beautifully, but simply rendered. George Miller is not out to like kind of wow you with like insane shot design. Like he's actually keeps it fairly simple, but what he makes complex, not complicated, but complex is what's happening inside the frame. Yes, sir. Right. Yes, and, the, and the and the elements as they are designed, right, that are in the frame, things that we are looking at and they're all of a piece. And it's just he's so brilliant, whether it is this or it's a freaking pig. Right. Uh, I mean, by the way, there are pigs, in fact, in the road warrior. Um, I will say that one thing you can say about the Mad Max movies, where at the very least we'll say about like the very first Mad Max, which I think deserves a mention in this context is. Mad Max has like one of the best final two minutes of like any movie ever. Totally like one of my faves. And I just feel like that guy that we meet at the end of that movie is totally present in the road warrior. And he is driving like one of the coolest effing cars in the history of cool effing cars in the movie, in the movies, not the movie. In the movies, there's a plural thing that's happening, but it wasn't happening in my mouth. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> okay. Okay. Wow. Very good. Yeah, that happened. Well, that brings us to number 25. And know this: the beginning is a very delicate time. The and known how? universe 
is ruled by the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. Oh, I forgot to tell you, I'm talking about Dune 1984. A beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. You are about to enter a world where the unexpected... Many dangers exist on Arrakis. The unknown an incredible secret has been kept on this planet. And the unbelievable meet. I see two great houses. Where kingdoms are built on Earth that moves. We have worm sign the likes of which even God has never seen. And skies are filled with fire. The prophecy which will cleanse the universe and bring us out of darkness. Where a young warrior is called upon to free his people. A world that holds creation's greatest treasure. He who controls the spice controls the universe. And greatest terrors. A world where the mighty... This is genocide. The deliberate and systematic destruction of all life on Arrakis. The mad. I will kill him! I will love you forever. And the magical... Father, the sleeper has awakened! ...will have their final battle. Long live the fighters! Do not show the slightest pity or mercy! A spectacular journey through the wonders of space and the mysteries of time. From the boundaries of the incredible to the borders of the impossible. Now, Frank Herbert's widely read, talked about, and cherished masterpiece comes to the screen. Dino De Laurentiis presents Dune, a world beyond your experience. Beyond your imagination. And of course, this is David Lynch's misbegotten adaptation of the classic Frank Herbert novel. And I love it. I remember seeing it. I never read the book, so I didn't know what he was screwing up. Didn't care. <laughs> I, I put, he you know, didn't I remember, screw up anything. I remember Siskel and, Siskel and Ebert reviewing it and saying, you can't watch this movie without a cliff notes explaining what's going on. And I'm thinking, what are they talking about? I know exactly. It wasn't that hard to follow. Why is everybody saying it's impossible to follow? Because they're stupid. And they said, well, it's because you read the book. I said, I didn't read the book. I just paid attention. They gave you a flyer at the beginning of the movie. Who needed it? I didn't need it. I understood. 
I thought it was very self-explanatory. But, you know, you had uh, Virginia Madsen at the beginning telling you everything you needed to know. Right. And anything she, you didn't know, she forgot to tell you. And then she tells you. That's so, right. She might have uh, forgotten. The fact it is a visual tour de force. There had never been a sci-fi movie that looked like this, that felt like this. It is gonzo. It brings the unique uh, David Lynch sensibility to the screen that he had honed over in a racer head an elephant man and would eventually thank God lead to the brilliant blue velvet a few years later with Kyle McLaughlin, but it's great. And you know what? He managed to fit the whole movie into two and a half hours. No bloody part one, part two. And um, it has a great cast and uh, you know, it's, I know he hates it. And uh, you know, obviously it's, it's such a shame that he was never able to, um, have the chance to recut it. Obviously, there have been uh, versions for television and, you know, the Alan Smithy cut, but it's a shame that, uh, you know, all this nonsense about Zack Snyder and his Justice League, who cares? I, I would give David Lynch some money and let him go to town on, on Dune. Now, that would be a work of art worth seeing. Totally agree. I, 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 have, I have the Dune glossary here that was handed out oh, um, before... Oh now, an actual Before one, or is it like online? Well, it, it's it's an online version, but oh, okay. I had one. I was hoping you personally have what one. What does it say? Well, you see, um, for example, a sandworm known as Shai Hulud, yeah. sandworm of Iraq, sandworms grow to enormous length. Some are 1,500 feet long and 120 feet high. That's not what Julie Wilson said. <laughs> unless drowned in Julie water, wins. which is poisoned to them. That's just one of the interesting factoids that you'll find in the Dune glossary. Fascinating. That is oh. fascinating. Would you would you would you like to know more? Would you like to know more? No, not right now. Remember the tooth. Remember, remember the tooth. Remember the, tooth. Remember the, the tooth? goddamn I, tooth. I, but I forgot to tell you about the tooth. No, now it is the year ten thousand one ninety one. I did. That's all I need to know. I know now, but I, I didn't know. know yeah, but uh, look, guys. I mean, wouldn't you say that? For all of the the mistakes this movie makes, the world building in it is it's enchanted. amazing. No, it's, it's amazing. I mean, Do honestly, it it, it 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 stands the test of time. Yeah, the effects are not good, but but the actual set design and the the mise en scène is pretty right. damn entrancing. This, the art direction by Tony Masters, who art directed Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey, is freaking amazing. All of the different worlds and different houses have their own uh, specific uh, mm -hmm. design. And you can look at something and say immediately whose it is. It's really fantastic. And yeah. the movie itself looks great when it has no right to look great. How great That's is that opening scene with Jose Ferrer and the Guild Navigator? Oh my God, totally it's great. great. I mean, it's it, so cool. It dumps so you good. into this world immediately. Sure, it's not a scene that's in the book. Well, it kind of is, but it's it's not a scene later. That it's later like in the book. That. It happens right. much later. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, it's sure a lot of fun. And man, the 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 guys uh, sweeping up the filth from the uh, third stage navigator at the end is pretty fun. And uh, look, this movie has fun. That's kind of what I missed from the. Nothing says right fun like filth. Mm -hmm. Well. It's interesting that for as much as like, you know, we, the, the conversation about the, 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 the Denis Villeneuve film 
uh, has been going on. I mean, look, it's it's about kind of like the scope of the the visuals and kind of the world building and the music and all that other stuff. And look, I don't want to take anything away from that film because I actually think it's quite good, except that it's one half of a movie. And I don't know yeah. that we can judge it until we see the kind rest of, a of it. Third of a movie. Yeah, kind of a third of a movie. Yeah. But um, I, and and look, Caden loved it, which like which blew my mind. Uh, but I think it's good because I went out and Darren, I did what you told me to do, and I bought him the book. Yeah, Isaac's reading, reading the book now too. So we can do like a like a you know a glorious Rexburg book club with the boys. Um, <laughs> but but <laughs> don't don't laugh at that because you know all of these things that we love, science fiction and horror, they are literary genres. They are, and I think the real love of the material comes from literature first. Of course, totally. nobody's laughing. But, but my point is now, if that, you say he loved Toto, that would be different. Well, no, 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 no. No, oh, that score is so great. It is. The score is so Toto score is amazing. Who would have thought the score for? Because remember, at the time when we saw this, they were on the radio all the time for Africa, right? Yeah. You know, that's we you knew Toto from yeah. and Wizard of Oz. It's but, completely um, amazing, but, and it's and it's there's never been anything like it except that I would argue that the that the Denis Villeneuve movie like is just look. There's a lot of elements visually that I feel simply would not exist the way that they exist without Lynch's movie. And I also don't think that Hans Zimmer's score would be anything like what it is without the Toto score for the 1984 movie. In Lynch's version, not once did I hear Wonder Woman's theme being played. For no <laughs> okay well look you you know, a lot of people bash on this movie you won't find them on this podcast no nope. which of course or any uh, podcast on the electric surge network not in this speech brings <laughs> brings us to number 24 and darren dackerman is back i'm i'm back buddy i'm back from the future steven spielberg presents back to the future a robert zemeckis film Marty leads an ordinary life. No McFly ever amounted to anything in the history of Hill Valley. Well, history is going to change. And 1985 is not his year. But Dr. Brown is about to change all that. Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? He's sending Marty 30 years back in time. It works! It's a flying saucer from outer space! Now, he's trapped in the past. This has got to be a dream. About to meet... Chocolate. ...his future father. He's a peeping tough. Wow! And he's making an impression on his mother. He's an absolute dream. And he can sleep in my room. Anything you do could have serious repercussions on future events. Now, he's got to make his mother and father fall in love. I haven't even been born yet. And only Dr. Brown... Can help him get back to the future. Are you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? Precisely. Michael J. Fox. Whoa, this is heavy. Christopher Lloyd. There's that word again, heavy. Why are things so heavy in the future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull? Back to the future. Um, back to the future was a a uh, wonderful film that came out in 1985, just as I was uh, exiting high school and entering college. Me too. Um, and uh, it, it came at the perfect time because uh, I, have a, I have a direct connection with Back to the Future because one of the first classes that I took when I went to USC was a uh, sort of a seminar about all the jobs on a film crew. 
And each semester they would pick a different film. And the semester that I took it, the film was Back to the Future. And the professor brought in all these people who worked on it, uh, including the uh, uh, composer, the uh, uh, cinematographer, uh, 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 Bob Gale came in and several people from the, uh, from the crew to talk well, about what they do on movies. Wait a minute, did you get the guys that actually made the time machine? Well, yeah, so, Kevin Pike. No, I mean, like, so they could actually travel through time. Like, did the physics, it must have been Rob, amazing. Rob, some movies are make-believe. <laughs> really? And they don't actually happen in real life. Dude, no. I thought the verisimilitude of Back to the Future was so good because they actually traveled through time. I mean, didn't didn't they build a time machine inside the DeLorean? Out of a DeLorean? Yes. Look, I, I okay, love so, that. Okay, so you must have physicists, too. Just I just want to give them credit. Well, I, unless you count uh, Ron Cobb and Andy Probert, who are part-time physicists. Well, that's good. Um, okay. Look, Back to the Future is uh, amazing because it never, it never should have been made. It, uh, there was so many things against this film actually happening. Um, mm. the, uh, the Bobs, Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis, who uh, co-wrote it, Bob Zemeckis directed it, Bob Gale produced it. Um, they were developing this for many years, uh, uh, even before uh, 1941, I believe. Uh, not the year, the movie. Um, but the, the idea sort of happened when Bob Gale was looking at his dad's uh, uh, high school yearbook and saw his picture in there. And he said, gee, I wonder if I would have been friends with my dad if I'd known him in high school. <laughs> and to me, that is such a pure uh, sort of story idea that it's, uh, it really comes across in the movie that it's a wonderful experience. And, you know, all the ramifications of, uh, you know, meeting your parents and, uh, and uh, interfering with them getting together is uh, so much fun and we're rooting for Marty McFly. Michael J. Fox is amazing in this, even though he was getting no sleep because he was doing uh, uh, family ties at the same time. Um, it's you know uh, who's getting plenty of sleep? Eric Stoltz. Oh, let's yeah, not be mean to Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz is a great actor. He was just a little too internal for this comedy that they found out after shooting with him for six weeks. And rooting uh, Marty McFly. <laughs> Marty, I have Mc these feelings about Marty my mom and my dad is a loser. <laughs> um, Damn it! Look, uh, the uh, the movie is amazing. The uh, the the effects are great. ILM uh, uh, doing some great work on this one. Alan Silvestri's score is amazing. When he came to our class and he talked about the uh, movie, he said the first thing Bob Zemeckis said to him was, "I want some big shit." I'm sure he didn't mean the quality. I'm sure he just meant the impact. And we get the impact. The score is amazing. And it's such a fun movie. And if you, if you block it out on a, on a graph, it is uh, pretty much perfect. All the, all the setups are, uh, are, uh, are paid off. Paid off. Yes. Just like that. Um, and the, uh, the character moments are great. The, uh, the, uh, repetition of certain things by people in different time frames is wonderful. And uh, look, all the characters are fun to watch and they act like 
real people mostly. Um, and it's just so great. It's a lot of fun. And uh, I, I'm actually sad that they made the sequels because I think the sequels detract a little bit from it. I agree. And number 23, we told you Ashley would be back and he's back. Ashley Miller, tell us about number 23. Um, look, what can we say about number 23 other than, um, Mark, you could be mine, but you're way out of line with your bitch slap rapping and your cocaine tongue. You get nothing done. I said you could be mine. And then number 23 is also one of the greatest sequels of all time. Uh Jim Cameron's uh, ginormously successful follow-up to his, I swear to God, I'm not making this up, uh, little indie movie, The Terminator, Terminator 2, which at the time was anything but a little indie movie. I need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. Twenty-nine-year-old female diagnosed as acute schizoaffective disorder. She believes that a machine called a Terminator was sent back through time to kill her. My son, he's in great danger. Are you the legal guardian of John Connor? What's he done now? There was a guy here this morning looking for him too. Yeah, a big guy on a bike. I wouldn't worry about him. Get down. Who sent you? You did. 35 years from now, you reprogrammed me to be your protector here. He's a Terminator like you, right? Not like me. T-1000, advanced prototype. Kill us all! Go! Come with me if you want to live. We don't have much time. Excellent. It's definitely you. Hasta la vista, baby. you kind of should have called terminators don't you agree <laughs> i agree right <laughs> terminators dun, 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 coming dun, dun, to a theater near you there's so many of them. and the thing is there are many i mean so terminator 2 basically picks up a little bit where um where the terminator left off again sort of dealing with children dealing with the consequences of the first movie and in this movie john connor adult john connor fighting the future war sends uh, a T-800, like from the first movie, back in time uh, to protect uh, his younger self from the arrival of um, the escalation of the stakes known as the T-1000, a Terminator, played by dun, Robert dun, Patrick, dun, dun. who is fantastic, uh, that is liquid metal and can assume any shape. 
The special uh, the technical effect- term is a mimetic polyalloy. Thank you. <laughs> um, the uh, special effects of this movie at the time, you know, weren't just state of the art. They were groundbreaking. Um, they were tomorrow's effects today. Uh, and um, and it shows Jim Cameron at his at his very best, I think, in terms as as a director, in the sense that he is basically showing off everything uh, that is in his in his tool book. He makes a chase down the L.A. River exciting. And if you've ever seen the L.A. River, you know, there's not much there. It's basically a big concrete drainage ditch. It's not much. But in this movie, it's awesome. Uh, the stunts, of course, because it's the time, uh, are practical. The movie is incredibly emotional. The relationship between John Connor uh, and the T-800 are, it, it's just, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's a, it's, it's kind of a boy and his dog movie, except really it's a movie about a boy who is looking for a father. And as Sarah Connor herself notes, finds one in the most unexpected place. Right. Uh, from a, a being, a cybernetic, like, oh, I was walking, but like from a being from a cybernetic organism that shouldn't be capable of emotion, shouldn't be capable of that sort of connection, but is leading to this incredibly emotional goodbye at the end of the film. Um, when the when the, the T-800 tells John, you know, look, kid, and this is paraphrasing you gotta let me go. Right. It's just, he gets down on his knee. He like, he likes, looks him in the eye. He holds him. There's like, there's a, there's a gentleness to this giant in that moment um, before he throws himself into the steel. Cause it's the only way, but at the same time, it's just, the movie's just badass. Is there anything cooler than Sarah Connor with like one arm just dangling at her side because it's freaking broken. And she is one hand pumping a shotgun and shooting Robert Patrick in the freaking face and turning him into a succession of dinner plates, trying to blow him off of like a catwalk in a molten steel. I don't think so. Right. Um, the, uh, the attack on Cyberdyne, uh, when uh, we are fending off the cops, right? And John Connor has told the T-800, stop killing, no killing. I told you no killing. No kill I. No kill I. And, you know, we watch as like the Terminator obeys those commands and he is, he doesn't kill a single cop. And so that's saying it's E.T. with Arnold Schwarzenegger. It totally is. It's a beautiful, emotional movie. Um, it is like, and look, you know, when we did the Sarah Connor Chronicles, we like basically ignored the other sequels because they suck. Uh, but you know, we tried to honor like what was in this movie as much as we tried to honor what was in the Terminator. And in the final analysis, these movies are about um, doomed love. That's what makes them work. That's what gives them their enduring power. They have these great science fiction ideas, which by the way, are explained like, you know, in the first Terminator, somebody asked Kyle Reese how the time machine works. And he says, I don't know, I didn't build the fucking thing, right? That's how we explain it. That's what audiences care about. Audiences care about what's happening in the drama. And Jim Cameron, at least at this time, understood that. And it's on full display. It was a pop culture phenomenon at the time, 
Um, it was hugely successful. I believe at the time it was one of the most expensive movies that was ever made. Well, it was the first hundred million dollar movie. Yeah, that's right. And it, it was made very quickly by TriStar. And I, I, I'd say I love everything you're saying. I think what's really interesting about this film is I don't think any other movie defines modern Hollywood than this does. Because the original Terminator was a four and a half million dollar film. It was a low budget movie. And it was watched on video and seen on cable and devoured by an audience. And it, it reached well beyond what it costs. I mean, this was a film that permeated the pop culture consciousness. So when they announced this film, I remember even I was like, they, they were going to make it in like nine months. And, and James Cameron, ILM, used what they'd come up with for the pseudopod sequence in uh, The Abyss. And the T-1000 was, was modern effects technology. And it, watching this, it was, I saw it the Cinerama for the first time. And this film really was a groundbreaking, I, I, I believe that Terminator 2 has defined Hollywood for the last 30 years. Except there learning never, all the wrong lessons from it. Well, yeah, yes, absolutely. That is absolutely true. But you had the original creator come in and do something. He, 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 he did what he does. Uh, why people bet against James Cameron, all these people are like, no, oh, who cares about the next avatar movies? I'm like, um, when has he ever let you down? <laughs> ever. Like never. Well, come on. No, no. You know what? On some level you're right. Um, and look, I I'm think one right. of the things that is, you know, Cameron's superpower is that he came out of, the Roger Corman school. Yep. Right. The guy who can make Escape from New York, Battle Beyond the Stars, those great films, which we've already talked about, were all because of him. No, that's exactly right. And once you learn oh. to make a movie like that, and and you have somebody like Cameron who is so meticulously organized and specific as a director who understands exactly what the F it is that he wants, of course you're going to bet a hundred million dollars on that guy in 1980, whatever. You know what I mean? It's like you're going to give him the cash to do that. And of yeah, course, no one had ever done that. I mean, yeah. it was an outlandish sum of film uh, of money and uh, he won. Like, and what, what was interesting was when you have a true auteur, you know, nowadays with corporate filmmaking and all that corporations have to have a spreadsheet. This was somebody going, I'll bet on this guy. And they won. They spent a hundred million dollars. And it should be noted here. And I think we'll kind of get into this in other films. Um, assuming that Jim Cameron comes back on this list, I can't imagine that he doesn't. One of the things that I will say about Cameron, at least again in this era, is he, there are lots of deleted scenes for this film. Um, and just as there are lots, I don't say there's a lot. Well, there's kind of a lot of deleted scenes from Aliens. He shot a bunch of material that he then had the discipline to say should not be in this movie. And he cut it mm -hmm. for the good of the movie rather than trying to keep it because he felt emotionally attached to it and precious about it. And that in and of itself is a rare, special and very important gift. I am looking at you, any movie that is three hours and 45 minutes long and we can't fucking figure out why. Yep, absolutely. Which brings us to number 22. And this is a film that was a delight from start to finish. 
after the stillborn prequels and the failure of the franchise to do anything original and the um the the force awakens which debuted to much hoopla but ultimately it was a thinly wailed remake of a new hope who would have thought that a prequel to the original star wars would be such a breath of fresh air and perhaps the greatest moment in star wars history since lando and chewbacca went searching for han solo at the end of empire strikes back but it was it's the dirty dozen in space as jen urso attempts to lead a motley band of rebels to procure the death star plans and get them back to the rebellion in order to destroy the death star shot in the style of the original star wars aping the look of a uh, Gilbert Taylor's cinematography in the 1977 classics with a ton of fun Easter eggs that aren't too heavy handed. This is Rogue One, the Star Wars story to end and begin all Star Wars stories. State your name for the record. Jin Erso. Forgery of Imperial documents. Possession of stolen property, aggravated assault, resisting arrest. On your own from the age of 15, reckless, aggressive, and undisciplined. This is a rebellion, isn't it? I rebel. We have a mission for you. A major weapons test is imminent. We need to know what it is and how to destroy it. Is that clear? Yes, sir. What will you do when they catch you? What will you do if they break you? You continue to fight. What will you become? Um, I look, I totally get why you love this movie. And as always, I respect your opinions deeply. Um, I don't love this movie as much as you do. I just, I have, I have issues with this film, like on a story level and like, even like on a scene level. And I automatically have questions when the third act is based on the problem. Shit. We need a longer extension cord. But that said, what I do most admire about this film is the, uh, is the passion of the creators behind it. Um, on an upcoming episode of an entire, well, it's not really an entirely different podcast because really that's Trek Express Briefing Room. Um, on an upcoming episode of another Electric Surge Network podcast, Cartoon Bar Room, Steve and I speak to uh, Paul Giacopo, uh, who did a lot of the, uh, the digital modeling, the character modeling, Grand Moff Tarkin, Princess Leia, and kind of talking to him and just kind of hearing him talk about like what a passion project that was for him. 
Um, and I think if nothing else, like all of my like being an a-hole screenwriter bullshit aside, um, watching that, watching this movie with that in mind, right, and appreciating the sort of the fanboy duda enthusiasm, the enthusiasm, enthusiasms, uh, the enthusiasms of the people who worked on it, I think is well worth your valuable time. It's a love letter to Star Wars, and it it's visible in every frame. And speaking of a love letter to science fiction, Darren Docterman, this is the big one. I'm going back in time again to 1951 to a film that uh, that is in many instances a B movie, and it should have been. It was treated like one. However, the writing and acting and directing in it is so good that it elevates the story completely and makes it a complete sci-fi classic. I'm talking, of course, about the Robert Wise directed The Day the Earth Stood Still. We interrupt this program to give you a bulletin just received from one of our naval units at sea. A large object traveling at supersonic speed is headed over the North Atlantic toward the east coast of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Drew Pearson. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon, the arrival of a space ship in Washington. The Army has taken every precaution to meet any emergency which may develop. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. If you threaten to extend your violence, this earth of yours will be reduced to a burned-out cinder. But he's a robot. Without you, what could he do? There's no limit to what he could do. He could destroy the earth. All vehicles, close in. Let's go. Um, it is a, uh, it's an amazing movie. Um, it's uh, a little, you know, by today's standards, it's not, uh, you know, explodey and uh, exciting and uh, all that sort one of. One sheet is the one sheet is, and it has uh, it has the the giant robot Gort uh, carrying a uh, a hapless woman off to some horrible end. But uh, it's it's not that at all. It is a it is a thinking person sci-fi. How do you know she didn't just trip and he picked her up and he was trying to help her? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But these things you're, happen. You're, um, you're, you're going to be canceled <laughs> for the way you treat robots. You just assume. It stars Michael Rennie in his first film uh, 
as Klaatu and uh, his uh, his normal guys as uh, a person Narata and Niktu, Mr. Carpenter. Um, and uh, there are uh, definitely uh, sort of uh, Christ-like uh, connotations in the story that uh, apparently uh, Robert Wise uh, said that um, he didn't realize it at the time. I think uh, the writer and the producer realized it and uh, they sort of slipped those things in because there's definitely a, uh, a Christ-like uh, uh, parallel to the story of uh, Klaatu. And, it's called uh, Carpenter. Yeah. How do you miss that? He was he was busy with other things. I mean, um, wait, he's either Jesus Christ or Harrison Ford, one or the other. Right. Maybe both. Um, the the story begins, of course, with the uh, arrival of a spaceship in Washington. It lands right in the middle of a baseball field, I believe, and uh, and out steps uh, a humanoid person. Uh, Klaatu, and uh, unfortunately, he he's he's bringing a gift, but unfortunately, the gift looks strangely like a weapon of some kind. It's a white elephant, and uh, and the uh, <laughs> the the military uh, uh, gung ho and trigger happy as usual shoots it out of his hand and uh, and hits him, and then out comes this big seven foot tall robot who uh, proceeds to uh, destroy. Um, most of the uh, army regiment there. Um, <laughs> it's a, uh, it's really a, it's a cool moment for sci-fi fans. We have a big silver spaceship, big silver robot, and a uh, uh, a big uh, sort of green lame uh, uh, suited uh, spaceman. Um, of course, we don't know it's green. It's in black and white, folks. You're not getting any color here. Um, so it's a, it's a great story. And of course, uh, human beings screw up with first contact again. Uh, and uh, luckily, uh, Klaatu is on a mission of peace and a warning that basically he comes from the United Federation of Planets or, you know, something like that at <laughs> the time. Uh, and, uh, but this federation is a little different. This is governed by a race of robots who cannot be bargained with. And if Reason you fall with, out of line, they'll interfere. Uh, no non-interference directive with these no guys. No non-interference directive there. Yeah, and uh, if you fall out of line, you will be destroyed. And uh, Klaatu was prepared to uh, press the button to destroy Earth as he arrived. But he he grew to know some uh, humans that he that were kind to him, and uh, he learned more about what actually humanity is capable of, and uh, and uh, what they could be. Um, it's. Uh, it's an interesting story because I, I know a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, people on both sides of the political spectrum have different opinions on this movie. They both like it, but they like it for different reasons. Um, it seems to me that uh, the actions of Klaatu and Gort in this are pretty much like a dictatorship. You know, uh, you know, shape up or you're out. It's uh, it's very interesting if you think of it. Uh, in a uh, you know particularly political vein, that of course it's it's anti-war and anti-weapons, but only anti-war and anti-weapons for the humans. So it's interesting. Uh, well, they're saying about. if Earth endangers other races, it has to be destroyed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's only a it's only a, a question of uh, who has the who has the power to destroy. So 
it's a it opens up some big questions. I mean, well, I uh, look, I think this film, like all great science fiction films do, opens up lines of questioning. And I think this film does a really good job of that. Absolutely. Because because here's the thing. It, it's one of the first films. Clatu learns to love human humanity. Yeah. And uh, he didn't expect that. I don't think. No. And and he came to do a job. He was a, he was a, he was he was he was given a task. He's a cop. He's an errand boy. This. Go do yeah. Sent by grocery crooks. Yeah. Collect a yeah. bill. And that. God, I love you guys <laughs> so much. I love you guys so much. But 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 that's what he was. And and you know one of the things I love about this movie so much is it has a great question that it asks the audience. You know, it, it presupposes the audience is smart. And here is a question that we're going to ask you about the actual disposition of your entire society. Yeah. And it's done in, you know, a B-movie franchise thing or whatever. And, and it makes you stop. And even as a kid, this is, this is a movie I remember stopping and thinking, like, I, I was like, Mom, what, 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 what would happen if this were, were real? You know, and, and I remember her mom like, she's like, why are you asking? I don't want to know, Bobby. Why? I'm like, no, but mom, I mean, like, should we give up nuclear weapons? I mean, should we do that? I mean, I was like six the first time I saw this. And my mom was like, shut the fuck up. She just didn't <laughs> want to hear it. Uh, but but it did make me think. I mean, this is what made me love science fiction as a as a kid. You know, I was watching Star Trek and War of the Worlds and when worlds collide and day the earth stood still all in the same two or three years. Yeah. And you th mm -hmm. This film as a child was, you know, as they'd say that modern star Trek, well, we have to make it on Nickelodeon and make it animated for children. This was a movie I watched at six and it, it, it fired my imagination, fired my thinking. And it made me ponder. What do I think? And that's what great sci-fi does. Yeah, uh, Darren talked about how War of the Worlds was his favorite film as a kid. You know, and I think Day of the Earth Stood Still was like my favorite film as a kid, you know. Um, and it's interesting because if you look at it, Daryl Zanuck didn't do a lot of, 20th Century Fox didn't do a lot of sci-fi. Wasn't a big fan of sci-fi. You know, he did a lot of social conscious movies. He did uh, a lot of movies that dealt with big themes or, or a spectacle. So, but when he did do sci-fi, it was only elevated. It was never really B. So you had Day of the Earth right. still, you had Planet of the Apes. And man, he, so for a guy who didn't really like the genre, he had a really great handle on how to do science fiction right. Because the few science fiction films that Fox did do are classics. And the Day of the Earth Stood Still has influenced so many filmmakers. It's brilliantly directed by our, our good friend, Bob Wise. And um, he's not really our good friend, but he's Darren's. <laughs> But, uh, you know, he, he's uh, obviously we're a fan of Bob Wise. We, we all, stood we close all took to a him. picture with him. Yeah, that's right. We all did, which makes us uh, fan friends. Obviously, Darren got to know him well during the director's edition project uh, circa 20 years ago. And um, uh, just uh, it, it's, it's a terrific uh, a film that was a huge influence on a young showrunner named Gene Roddenberry. Huge fan of this movie. He was a huge fan of this movie. It was a film they looked at before they did The Cage, and they looked at it again before they did Next Generation. It remained uh, 
one of his favorite movies of all time. In fact, it was one of the reasons that the studio hired Bob Wise because they knew Gene Roddenberry was such a huge fan of this movie that maybe he would listen to Robert Wise. That was their first mistake. It's well, maybe not their first, right? But what a Betty. Amazing. And that's the day the earth stood still, which brings us to number 20 and Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. Here's the thing. I'm always rattling around about verisimilitude, the the recreation of reality in film. And I think in terms of modern science fiction, no one does a better job of that than Denis Villeneuve. Um, We've been given, I mean, his entire filmography, if you look at it, it's whether it's Prisoners and Cindy's. Uh, Sicario, I mean, he's done some amazing work, but he's also made three of the greatest modern science fiction films we've seen. Arrival, Blade Runner 2049, and most recently, still in theaters right now as we record this, Dune. The outsiders ravage our land. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. So you're going tomorrow? Yes, I'm going tomorrow with the advanced team. I'd like you to take me with you. Are you trying to get me court-martialed? Can I trust you with something? I've been having dreams about a girl falling in battle. Felt like a vision. Dreams make good stories, but everything important happens when we're awake. To the future of House Atreides. You have to be ready. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. They're not human, they're brutal. What if I'm not dead? You'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. Come on! My son. It is the third adaptation of Frank Herbert's novel. But I think we would all agree, I don't think there has ever been an evocation of a science fiction world that is more fully realized than what 
we are, are, are looking at in Dune. I have to say for me, I, 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 I saw the film for the first time on the Warner Brothers lot at, uh, on this at the Steve Ross Theater. And the sound, I mean, that's a theater where it, it was literally designed to show movies in their best possible light. And I, I saw The Matrix there for the first time. I saw The Postman there for the first time. And I saw Speed Racer. And Superman I, Returns there for the first time. Uh, no, because it wasn't there yet. Oh, or, was it? Maybe it was. I, mean, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. But could oh uh, no no no. You're right. You're absolutely right. It was there. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. And um, it, it seeing Dune was as the uh, viceroy of verisimilitude, as I call myself. I don't think I've ever had a science fiction film going experience more realistic, more transcendent, more amazing than seeing Dune 2021 in that theater. I felt I felt completely transported to Arrakis, to Caladan, to Giddy Prime. I, I, I honestly, I, I, I can't believe what Denis Villeneuve did. did. I, 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 it was it was incredible. It was it was astonishing. However, that said, I do feel that I have thoughts. I, I, I just think the emotional component might not been, uh, it wasn't as deep as I wanted it to be. Yeah. However, the evocation of, of a world, I was so transported between Hans Zimmer's score and the cinematography and the, the acting, the, the, the way it was cast, it was so brilliantly conceived. I, I loved it, man. I, I was, I, I sat in that theater. My jaw like was, I was literally like this. It made it impossible to chew popcorn, by the way. I, I, there was no popcorn. I, I couldn't even, I couldn't even, I, I was so, I don't think there's ever been a time I ever thought, sat in a theater where I was like, I, I, I was so transported, so transfixed. It is, it is a singular example of what great science fiction cinema can do. And I wasn't the only one. I was with a very jaded audience of people. And all of them were like walking after the movie was over. It was, they were all stunned. I don't think there's ever been a better science fiction film that has been evocative, that has created a world that we were that immersed in ever. But they didn't so, say Harkonnen, right? They kept saying Harkonnen. I like yeah, it. What's that about? Hark- Harkonnen. Is I, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. Instead of Harkonnen. his doom. Guys, doom. Yeah. Harkonnen is incorrect. Well, it sounds well, better. it's correct now. It I prefer Harkonnen. For 40 years. Harkonnen. I don't Harkonnen. like Harkonnen. Doesn't work Harkonnen. for me. I, I like Harkonnen. Me I too. And, and, and uh, you know what? I, I Look, I, this movie, there's no arguing with the fact that I, it is a, an incredible realization of a fully developed science fiction world. But then it's like, what was with that voiceover guy? You know, when he when when he uh, he's he's looking at his little books on tape about, you know, uh, uh, you know, Giddy Prime, Giddy Prime, the, you know, the emperor. is da, da, da. It's like the voice in the David Lynch one was cool. Yeah. It's like Caladan. It was like, I don't know, like a real good voiceover. This guy was like, oh, wait, we, are we finishing the mix? Can someone come over? It's like the guy who did the transporter. They're beaming now. It's, it's like, what was well, with we that got voice? Back, you know, it's, it's funny. The, the film book voice in the Lynch version, the film book voice in the Lynch version sounds an awful lot like Gene Roddenberry to me. 
Oh, well, I like that voice, but I, I just couldn't understand because he's watching these books on tape about the universe. It's like these little view masters and he's projecting on his wall, you know, little Timothy Chalamet. And it's like, you know, it's explained. It's just this, this voice is so bland. And it's like, I think they would have got a better voice. Like Apple would have had a better voice. It, than, right? than, but, you know, sometimes, than... you know, casting like for voices, for reading audiobooks can be really touchy. So I think that actually like plays into Rob's point about verisimilitude. Uh, because in the real world, sometimes the voice acting on audiobooks just really blows. What about well, the bagpipes? I, I would hope. Oma the Mentats, the human computers. Noah Mentat by his red stained lips. Nobody even died. <laughs> Why do they have bagpipes? Why are they playing bagpipes? I don't get it. Because bagpipes. they're Scottish. They're space Scots. They're space, space Scots. Scots. That makes no sense to me. Um, Scotty's nowhere to be seen. I, I will say. I, I think it's a great movie. I, I just, I, I, it's great. I will add to my previous comment when we were talking about 1984, Dune, and uh, who Caden, by the way, hasn't seen 1984. That's on his list. I love it. um, Not only did Caden love Dune 2021, uh, he saw it twice because he saw it once with his mom. He saw it once with me because I missed it when they went. And he loved it even more the second time, which I think is a pretty good sign. And this is a kid who has been mehing his way uh, through a bunch of Marvel You've stuff. You've raised lately. him well. Thank you. So there you go. Not that his vote means anything, but it just it's telling to me that like that that is like not on paper the target audience. And now that target audience is responding to things that should be aimed at him, and his response is meh. But things that are aimed at me, right? That he's right. going, wow, that's amazing. I've never seen anything like that before. As long as he doesn't want a Turbo Man doll for Christmas, you'll be fine. That's true. (laughs) God knows how I'm going to find that. Exactly. Exactly. Well, by the way, you guys should watch Lost in Space. Really? Why? It's really good. It is? Yeah. Okay. The third season is really good. Okay. Well, you know what? That's enough of a recommendation for me. I I, I haven't watched it. Talk about that. That's TV. Well, yeah, I know. I, I heard talking talk. about Universal Armageddon. Oh, I thought, uh, uh, He's I talking about we recording TV. anymore. <laughs> you had idea. Did I wrap up? Did I say like, "Thanks for listening. Thanks for being with us today." It's an entirely different podcast. None of that. Yeah, I did keep on trucking and gloriously, of course. I didn't say any of that. So we're still well, recording. Well, the Lost in Space movies now on this list. But I will say this: the show is very good. The show's good on Netflix. <laughs> Yeah. It got to be better than Cowboy Bebop, man. I gave that about twenty minutes, and I was out of there. Oh, yeah, that was that was not good. Well, we have friends that are working. We do. Yeah. We do. We'll talk and about friends it. You have. <laughs> we'll talk about it when we wrap up. Well, yeah. this was another great episode of the Top One Hundred and One as we go into our fourteenth hour. And uh, what was it? Hour Twenty One. The, the old radio show. America held uh, hostage. Oh my God! <laughs> That's right. Well, um. I want to thank, uh, obviously, Bill Ritter, who continues to be with us. We haven't killed him with this. You don't know yet. He might have (laughs) run out of the room. Of course, our producers, Peter Holmstrom, Zach Raggett, Nally Miscalli. I want to thank you, the listeners, for sticking with us. And, of course, you can let us know your picks, where where we got it right, where we got it wrong. Although I think we kind of got it right. But you can uh, reach us on Twitter, uh, at Inglorious Trek, or Facebook and Instagram, and Inglorious Trexperts. Of course, a very special thanks to our guests, Robert Meyer Burnett, um, and a, from everybody except Julie Wilson and uh, Ashley Edward Miller, and my in Dutch indefatigable, incredible co-host 
I don't know. I believe that word is indefatigable. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. What I, I mean, that's what I said. Indefatigable that's is what she a, said. I'm definitely deal. indefatigable. Yeah, I'm indefatigable. <laughs> the great dad. Uh, right, and I was into it for a while, then I wasn't into it as much. The and... great Darren doctorate. I'd like to thank this triple. The only love money can't buy. I'm going into full and... girl lives mode on you. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, well, that's a great Christmas special. The uh, Santa Claus is coming to town. Silver and gold. soon to be on the cartoon barroom holiday special, holiday special. Oh, you're doing a Rankin Bass episode? We're gonna do a holiday special, holiday special. Oh, yes. that's yes, we are. nice. That's that's good. right. The Rankin Rob, Bass. You're Rankin. gonna be on it. You don't yes. even know that yet, but you're gonna be on that special. Oh, well, well, well. I have a few thoughts about the uh, uh, Christmas holiday specials. Some of them are really good. Some not so much. I'm Mister Heat Miser. I'm Mister Sun. You know who I, I always uh, like? The Burgermeister Meisterburger. Yeah, And Santa too. Claus is coming That's to town. That's Santa Claus is coming to town. Yeah, Paul, Paul Freeze. The great Paul Freeze. It is the goddamn Citizen Kane of holidays. <laughs> Don't special. you think so? I love the way it, you, know, that it you really learn the is, whole mythology the way. Really of Christmas is. Yeah. No, it's from great. one special, how he becomes Santa Claus. Yeah. They layer it in. That's great writing. It is. It's you fantastic. Know, it's Santa Claus episode one is what it is. It's, Look, it's, exactly. it's Santa Claus is coming to town. Rudolph the Red Nose Ranger. Reindeer. Also, and 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 the year without a Santa Claus, those are the three. I'm yeah. surprised that Blitzen hasn't been canceled. There's that point at which he says, uh, where he says, This is man's work. It's like, wow, man, you are and <laughs> Santa. Time, Santa which is, time you saw Blitzen on any chat shows. I'm just that's true. And that's Santa right. is kind of a he totally Santa's kind Twitter of a account. dick in that the way he treats Hermes and he treats uh, Hermes, Hermes and he treats. Hermes, he's really Hermes mean to a, poor Hermes, Rudolph. Actually, yeah, he, but you guys, he, he wants to be a came out as trans, and everyone's supportive of him. Oh, you know, he or only, now he, he only our last like, embraces. <laughs> he only oh embraces Rudolph's God. disability when it's helpful to him. Yeah. but he's very dismissive of it. He's laughing at the poor guy's well, deformity. Santa has a race of slaves working for him. It's true. So let's. Okay, we're so good. Did this go off the rails? You thought I was canceled? Wow. Yeah. I'm just saying. I don't know. I, I don't know. Here we're talking Tune about these next lovely, time when we charming shows. Tune in next time True. when it's not just an entirely different podcast, but entirely different podcasters. <laughs> anyway, well, it's been. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for sticking with us, and we can't wait to see you back here for episode six as we pick up. With number 19 on our top 101 countdown. What will it be? You'll find out on our next episode. Until then, keep on trekking and gloriously, of course. You're listening to the Electric Surge Network.